those of you who don't know him or have not met him, this is Brent Downs, my friend over here. Through the years, you've heard me mention him several different times. Stand up, Brent, so that everybody can get a good look at your lovely mug. Brent lives in California with his wife, Jen, and his kids. It's his daughter who uh, reprimanded us one week because we forgot to say goodbye to the Internet congregation. And so every week, I remember to do that strictly because of Brent's daughter. Brent was with me the first time that we walked into this building. So we'll be a public church for 18 years coming up in June, meeting in this building as a public church. And it was Brent that was really key to that happening. He's the one who set up our nonprofit status for us. He's the one who did a lot of the incorporation paperwork for us. And he's the one who, when I came in here thinking we would initially meet out in what used to be the garage out there. All of you people back there, you're in the garage. And we looked at the garage, and then we came in here, and there was an island right here. This was the living room and the kitchen. And uh, I looked around, and I said, I don't think this is going to work. And it was Brent who said to me, after looking at the high ceilings and looking around the room and imagining if we move the island He's the one who said to me, you're not looking at it right, Jim. And we've been here for 18 years because of that. So if you enjoy meeting here with all of us, then you owe Brent a word of thanks. (laughs) Why he decided to move to California, we'll never know. We're continuing in the book of Mark, but we are now at the point in Mark where we're going to be talking about the trial of Jesus and the ultimate crucifixion of Jesus, which means that we are really honing in now on the very essence of what constitutes the gospel. Even though there was good news announced when Jesus was born, that's not what we mean when we say the gospel. That's not what constitutes the gospel. Even though there was good news of the kingdom preached while Jesus was on the planet, the gospel of the kingdom was preached, but that's not what we mean when we say the gospel. Even though Jesus walked around on the planet doing all kinds of miracles, when it came time for Paul to define what the gospel is, He didn't say, well, Jesus came and did the miraculous or walked on water. That was not the essential element of the gospel. Even though Jesus came and fulfilled prophecy and said that prophecy concerning Israel is still good and the Abrahamic covenant is still good, even though he showed us the continuity of the Old and the New Testament as he brought in the New Covenant, that's still not the essence of what we call the gospel. In fact, one of the earliest Christian creeds constructed within the first 30 years after Jesus died is recited for us by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that creed tells us what the essential elements of the gospel actually are. Here's what Paul wrote. 
He said, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That means in league with the scriptures, in league with what had been prophesied about him. He died for our sin according to what the scripture already said he was going to do. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That statement, that essential statement of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection constitutes what the vast majority of Bible scholars and commentators say constitutes the earliest Christian creed. That was the essence of what made Christianity. There were a lot of other things that Paul would later teach, things that he called sound doctrine, the doctrine of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of God's electing grace before the foundation of the world. But that is stuff that Paul wrote to believers. He wrote it to the church. He wrote it to people who had already been saved, and then he taught them the sovereignty of God that saved them. But he didn't include it here in the earliest Christian creed. The earliest essence of the gospel is Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose again. And then he appeared. He proved himself to actually be raised. Now, one of the most amazing things about the history of Christianity and through all these years as I've continued to dig into the elements of Christianity and the history of Christianity, one of the most astounding realities of Christianity is that this preachment, this creed, was said within 30 years. By the time Paul wrote it, it was already well known. People will try to criticize Christianity and they'll say, well, that's a result, that whole story of Jesus and the death and the burial and the resurrection, that's a result of historic development. And over time, legends were added to Christianity. But there's not enough time for legendary development here. This is 25 years. This is 30 years. And they were already convinced that Jesus had died he was proven to be dead, so they put him in a tomb, and then he was alive, and he was proven to be alive, and here's the amazing part, that belief took hold in Jerusalem, the very place where he died, where he was buried, where he resurrected, which means had that not happened, like let's say that the Romans did crucify him, and then, like the School of Divinity at Vanderbilt a few years ago published a paper that said that the reason Jesus' body was never found was because his body was eaten by dogs. And so he died and he stayed dead. Well, then if that had actually happened, if he had actually died and then his body was somehow destroyed or eaten by dogs, 
then how do you explain in a very, very short time people walking around saying he's alive? He's not only alive, he's provably alive, and he's been seen. And he's not just been seen by his apostles, but Paul goes on to say he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, that's all the apostles, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So 500 brethren, the most of whom are still alive, Paul saying, go check with them. He was seen, he was seen, he was seen repeatedly, and that belief got its first foothold in Jerusalem. Now, I can believe if the apostles believed that Jesus was the Messiah, he was the king, he was going to establish the kingdom for Israel, and then he died, and then he stayed dead, and then his body was eaten by dogs or dragged off to an unknown grave. I can believe that the apostles, having invested so much in this lie, I could understand if they went to, like, Africa, And started telling the story that Jesus was Messiah. And maybe Christianity could settle in in some corner of Egypt or something. I could understand it if they went westwardly from there. And they started preaching in Greece and in Rome. And they started saying, oh, this Jesus, he was in Jerusalem and he was crucified. And uh, he um, raised again. Yeah, that's it. And he's alive again. And so that's our religion and we're the important guys. I can see that getting a foothold among the pantheon of Greek gods and everything else. I can see them saying, okay, we'll just add Jesus to what we already believe. But the fact that Christianity got its first foothold historically in the very place that would know whether these things actually occurred or not, and that most of the people who were saying it were still alive, you could check with them, And that the creed was so convincing that people were willing to die for it. They were so convinced that Jesus was alive again that they wouldn't recant. They wouldn't back off it. And many of the early martyrs were killed in horrible, brutal ways simply because they would not recant of that creed. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ raised again. That, according to Paul, is the gospel. When we tell the gospel, that's what we have to include. So I said all that because this next portion of Mark is really all about Jesus died, and then it's about Jesus was buried, and then it's about Jesus was raised again. So this is the very essential gospel message, which is why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are referred to as the gospels, the euangelion, the telling of the good news. Mark has gone through all this trouble to tell us who it is that's going to die. He's gone through all the trouble of telling us of his miraculous abilities and his power and his control over nature and his absolute authority over everything and everyone. He wants to make sure you know who it is that's going to end up on this cross. But now he's reached the point in his letter where he's going to confirm the very essential elements of the gospel that Jesus 
is going to be tried by the Jews, exactly like he said. He's going to be handed over to Romans and Gentiles, just like he said. And then he's going to be crucified, just like he said. Just like was predicted all the way back in Isaiah. And then he's going to rise again, and he tells them repeatedly, in three days I'll be up. The reason that's so important is according to Jewish custom, it took three days for somebody to be really genuinely dead. Which is why Jesus, when he came to see Lazarus, after Lazarus died, he waited three days. Because he knew if he came and raised Lazarus after a day or two days, people would say, well, then he wasn't really dead. But after three days, he gets there and his relatives, Lazarus' relatives, are saying, behold, he stinks. He's decaying now. He's like really, truly dead. So according to Jewish custom, you waited three days and then you went and anointed the body with the fragrant odors and stuff to bring the smell down and sort of embalm the body for good because now he's really dead. So Jesus said, I'm going to be dead three days till I'm really dead, till I'm totally dead. Not like Max the Magician saying he's only mostly dead. (laughs) Okay, good. A few of you got that reference. I mean, totally, genuinely, literally, D-E-D, dead. I know I misspelled it. I understand. Just dead as dead gets, and yet lived again. So this is the culmination of Mark's gospel. Now, the first thing he's going to tell us here, starting in the middle of chapter 14, the thing he's going to prove to us is that the Jews try Jesus And they can't find anything to charge him with. Why? Because he's guiltless. He's innocent. He didn't do anything that is worth killing him for. But they want him out of the way. They want him dead. Remember what I've said several times now. The Jews have a much more vested interest in destroying the preaching of Jesus than any of us do right here, right now on planet Earth in the 21st century. Their job is at stake. Their money-making ability is at stake. Their authority over other people is at stake. It's really necessary for them to just squash this whole Jesus thing. So they're going to find something. They want him dead. And ultimately, they're going to say, are you the son of God? And he's going to say, because he's honest and he can't deny himself, he's going to say, yeah. (laughs) Yes, I am. You said it. I'm the son of God. And the high priest is going to stand up and tear his robe and say, blasphemy. What more do we need? Since we can't find a witness, and since even the law says that there has to be two or three witnesses, and you can't take the word of any one witness, and they can't seem to find any two guys that even agree on their testimony, they finally charge him with blasphemy. That's the reason he's going to die. He's going to die for admitting that he is who he is. Then he's going to stay dead for three days till he's D-E-D dead. Okay, good. And then he's going to rise again, just like he said. And when he rises, nobody's there. You would think there'd be 12 guys standing the other side of the rock, well, 11 at least, standing the other side of the stone saying, well, we knew you'd be back. It says so in the scripture, and you kept telling us. But instead, what we're going to read is about Peter's denial And how all the apostles have just scattered to save their own skin. And Jesus accomplishes 
everything he accomplishes by himself, all alone, because Christianity is Christocentric. It's all about Jesus, the only one who could do what only he could do and did do because none of us could do it. Okay, that's all introduction. Because we're getting ready to paint the building, we have taken the clock off the back wall, which means I don't have a clock in front of me. Oh, and... All right, so we're in Mark 14. Last week we saw the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. We're going to start reading at verse 53 of Mark 14. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers, and he was warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they weren't finding any. Because he's innocent. What did he do? He did nothing but good. He healed people. He went around preaching a message of God's love and peace. And so they couldn't find anything against him. Verse 56 says, for many were giving false testimony against him. What does that mean? Well, that means that they were breaking the commandment that says, don't be a false witness. And yet they're lining up to make sure they get their opportunity to testify against Jesus. And yet Mark tells us, and yet their testimony was not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say... I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another one made without hands. Is that what Jesus said? No. He was standing in the temple in Jerusalem, and he predicted that it was going to be destroyed in 70 AD. But John tells us that when he said, tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, that he was talking about his body. But they applied it to the temple so they could say, look, he's some kind of nut. He said, destroy this fabulous temple that Herod built that reaches all the way back to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and in three days, I'll build another one. That's not what he said. So they're giving false testimony about him, and verse 59 says, and not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So one after one after one after one after another after another, they keep standing up and trying to find something to accuse him with, and they can't find anything that sticks because no two of them can even agree on what they're charging him with. So the high priest, verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you make no answer? Isn't that an interesting element? When Jesus was being accused, both here and before Pilate and before Herod, one of the things that Pilate and Herod both are really astounded by is that Jesus doesn't defend himself. And any person who wants to keep living would defend himself. But Jesus doesn't intend to keep living. He intends that they're going to charge him. He intends to wind up on the cross. And because he's innocent, he has to accomplish his own death. 
we are all going to die naturally. We are going to die as a result of our sinful, decaying bodies. At some point, our body is going to give up and die on us. But Jesus was perfect and sinless, and since the wages of sin is death, and he had no sin, death had no hold on him. So he had to actually accomplish his own death. He said that in the book of John. He said, no man takes my life from me. I have this command from my father, so I have the power to lay my life down, because it actually took power. It took authority for him to actually accomplish his own death. So he said, I have this command. I lay down my own life. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. But I have this command from my father, which is why in Gethsemane, he was praying, not my will, but thine be done. Because I have this command from my father. I have to go through this no matter how terrifying it's going to be. I have to accomplish my own death. So as a consequence, exactly the way he's described by the prophets in the Old Testament, like a sheep before his shears is dumb, he ended up speaking nothing. He didn't defend himself. Because he knew that what he was accomplishing was going to be the salvation of all his people and the condemnation of the very people who were killing him, he was content to let it happen. So he kept silence, says verse 61. And he made no answer. And again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And at that point, Jesus answers, because he cannot deny himself. And he said, I am. There's Jesus using that proper God name. I am. I am the God that is. When Moses saw the burning bush, burning bush spoke to him and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am, which I find kind of astounding. I'd have been running the other direction as fast as I possibly could. But he says, okay, you got me. Here I am. And he says, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, Pharaoh believes in a whole pantheon of gods. So Moses asks the very intelligent question, who should I say sent me? What God? Which God? Who are you? And the real God, the only God that exists gives no defense for himself, and simply says, I am. That's what you need to know about me. In fact, I am that I am. I am because I am. Now you go tell Pharaoh, I am sent me. Which, by the way, implies that every other God am not. (laughs) Because he's the only God that, that is. That has isness, that exists. And he could say definitively, I am. They're not. Jesus, when he's asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? says, I am. That name that only he can use. That name that when he said it in the garden, caused the guards who would come out to get him to fall down backwards because they couldn't stand on their feet in front of the Son of God announcing his own name. That's the power of the Son of God saying, I am. So he replies, I am and, and he quotes right from Scripture, 
you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Reaching all the way back to Daniel 7.13. I'm that Son of Man. I'm that God-man that Daniel predicted. And you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of God. When are they going to see him like that? Oh, in the judgment. And you're going to see me coming in clouds of glory. Because that's who I am. And how does the high priest react? Verse 63 He stood up and he tore his clothes and the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? He was so determined to get Jesus on something. And since none of the witnesses could seem to agree with each other, once he got Jesus to say, I'm the son of God, I am the Messiah. He said, that's it. That's blasphemy. I don't need any other witnesses. I finally got him. I've got him on telling the truth. Verse 64, you have heard the blasphemy, so how does it seem to you? He's asking the group, the council, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. So they blindfold him and they start punching him. Roman guards, Roman centurions, big guys, take turns punching him in the face and then mocking him by saying, now prophesy, who's hitting you? He knows. He knows who's hitting him. In fact, they're going to stand before him when he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's going to be a very dark day. When he says to them, I know you. You're the guy who used to punch me in the face when I was blindfolded. Depart from me into outer darkness. He's the judge, and he lost none of his authority, none of his power, which we looked at last week. When he healed the high priest's servant's ear after Peter lopped it off, he was demonstrating that he still has his power, he still has his authority, he's still the son of God, which means he knew who was hitting him, and yet... And this is astounding to me, and I hope you can enter into this deeply. The very Son of God, the very beloved one in whom all the saved are found, that one who came and did nothing but good, who's also the judge of everything, that one with all the power, all the authority, let worms like us hit him. That's astounding. He let Worms like us spit on him, slap him. And at any point, he could have spoken to his father, and his father would have sent legions of angels. It only took one angel to wipe out, what did we get, 10,000 Assyrians in a night? Is that the way that one worked? I mean, one angel is pretty good. Legions of angels? To come and defend Jesus? He said, all I got to do is speak the word. Because with him, words are things. All he has to do is say, you're all dead, and they'd all die. All he had to do was speak with the authority he had, and he could have walked through them like he walked through every other crowd. But he didn't. He allowed himself to be beaten and mocked 
and they plucked out his beard and they slapped him in the face. They belittled him and then ultimately nailed him to a piece of wood and he allowed it to happen. That's astounding. Now, why? Go the rest of the way. Why would the glorious Son of God allow himself to go through that level of torture? Why would he allow his creation to mock him? Why would he allow worms to hit him in the face? Would you say, Leon? Because scripture said so, and he had a command from his father, and if he had not done that, you have no hope. When he went through that, he did it for you, because you couldn't go through it. You're not going to be able to stand up to what he had to stand up to. You cannot engage the wrath of God, but he could. So he did all that for the people he was going to save. You were in his heart and in his mind as he was allowing Roman centurions to beat him. That's love. You you want to see love? There's love right there. The love of God that just passes understanding. So they beat him and they hit him. They received him with slaps in the face. Meanwhile, Peter's watching all this. Verse 66, Peter was out in the courtyard, and one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself by the fire, she looked at him and said, You too were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about, you silly girl. I have no idea what you're saying. Three and a half years, I was perfectly willing to walk and talk with him. Three and a half years, I was willing to eat the food he supplied for us every day. Three and a half years, I was happy to go take a coin out of a fish's mouth and pay our taxes, and he just took care of us all the way across. In fact, for three and a half years, I was happy when he healed my mother-in-law of her sickness, and I was happy when I walked on water with him. I was perfectly willing to hang with him, but now that it looks like he's in trouble and he's getting beaten in the face by some Roman guards and I don't want to go through that, I don't know him. I'm no part of that. I don't even know what you're saying. So he went out to the porch. Verse 69. And the maid saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them. For you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse like fishermen can. He began to curse, trying to really argue his point. I don't know him. He began to curse and to swear and said, I don't know this man you are talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter began to weep. Another account of it says, because he was right there, because he was right where he could see Jesus, it says that on the third of his denials, Jesus looked at him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then he was reminded that he had just denied 
the son of glory, the one that had supplied for him for the last three and a half years, the one that he had placed his whole life and hope in. And now he denied him. Plus, so there's a girl, the high priest servant's maid. She says to Peter, you're one of them. I've seen you with him. You're one of them. Okay, at that moment, was she using her own free will to ask that question? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because she's not a believer. She's not a follower. She's one of the people accusing Jesus. And so he goes out to the porch, and the maid comes to him and says, Yeah, you were with him. I know you. I saw you. This is him. This is one of them. Was that her free will that did that? Because don't forget that Jesus said, before sunup, before the rooster crows, three times you're going to deny me. If he's going to deny Jesus three times, there has to be three accusations that he was with Jesus. So that means three people had to go and accuse Peter. In the end, it says there was a group of them, all accusing Peter and all fulfilling scripture and all doing exactly What the Son of Man said they were going to do, even though they were busy trying to kill him, he's still in control. Isn't that amazing? So sure enough, the rooster crows a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Chapter 15, and early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate. The important element of this that Mark kind of slips in there is early in the morning. So it's still Passover day. This is still the 14th of Nisan. He's already had Passover supper after sundown, the beginning of that day by Jewish lunar reckoning. And then he was tried through the night. He was picked up in Gethsemane at night. And so this court that is finding him guilty is an illegal court because they're meeting at night away from the crowds and they're bringing in all these false witnesses So it is literally, genuinely a kangaroo court from Australia. I'm just going to keep using that joke until it's funny. So he is being tried and found guilty illegally against what the law says and even against the way that the Sanhedrin worked. And then by morning, they're already sending him to Pilate because by that afternoon, he has to be on the cross. Because he has to be on the cross while it's still Passover. So things are moving very, very quickly, much more quickly than they normally would. Why? Because he's in charge. Because he has a date with a cross. Because he has to be on the cross that day. It's one of the reasons, I think, that he's keeping his mouth shut and not arguing. So let's move. Let's just do this thing. So chapter 15 starts with early in the morning. So that's the morning of Nisan 14th. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and they delivered him up to Pilate. Now, Pilate is a Roman procurator. He's governing that area of the Middle East that includes Jerusalem and Judah. He doesn't like the job, by the way. 
He has petitioned Rome a couple of times to get him out of there. He'd like to be in a more prestigious area. And now the Jews, who he's just trying to keep peace with, bring him Jesus, and Pilate knows nothing about him. Pilate doesn't know all the religious argument or the blasphemy argument. He knows nothing of that. So Pilate questioned him and said, are you the king of the Jews? And answering, he said, it is as you say. Now, the reason Pilate starts with that question is that Pilate's whole job is to keep peace there in the Seleucid portion of the Alexandrian Empire, that part of the Middle East. His whole job is to just keep peace there. And if there's somebody that claims to be a king, squash him. Because there's only one king, that's Caesar. And so if somebody's trying to cause an insurrection and be a king in this area, we have to just stop them immediately. So Pilate's initial interest in all of this is completely political. So he said, are you the king of the Jews? And answering him, he said, it is as you say. And the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. And Pilate was questioning him again, saying, do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. Any guilty person who has all these charges against him is going to say, wait, wait, wait. Okay, some of that's not true. Most of that's not true. No, I swear most of that's not true. Jesus just wants this to happen. Just move it forward. So Jesus made no further answer, says verse 5, so that Pilate was amazed. And Pilate's going to even try to put it off and not kill him. Because Pilate can't find anything in him worthy of death. Pilate's just trying to keep peace there in Israel. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. And the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection... And the multitude went up and began to ask him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. In other words, you're going to give us somebody, give us a choice, let us have somebody at the Passover, some guilty person, release him. Now, at this point, keep your finger sort of right there, but there's also all of this other stuff that happens that we don't read about in the book of Mark. Turn over to the book of Luke. And turn to Luke 22. And we're going to fill in a few blanks here because Jesus is also sent to go stand before Herod. And Herod is equally astounded that Jesus doesn't say anything in his own defense. Actually, it's Luke 23. Go there. Some of this will sound familiar. Starting at 23, verse 1. The whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Is that true? No. 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 But they realize that they can't make a religious argument to Pilate. They have to make a political argument. So they're saying, well, he's trying to tell people not to pay taxes to Caesar. What he actually said was, give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. So they end up saying, he is forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar, 
And he's saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. And Pilate said to the chief priests and to the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he did belong to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Now we're going to read later on that Herod and Pilate don't get along. Herod is an Edomian king who's been put in place by Rome. He's not even a Jewish king. He's not a descendant of David. He's not part of the Davidic line of kings. But he's ruling in Jerusalem because Rome has put him there. He doesn't want to be there. Pilate doesn't want to be there. Pilate and Herod don't like each other. And they don't agree on anything because they're both trying to rule these people. One from a political angle and one from a religious angle. And we're going to read that this is the first time they became friends and agreed on something. They both agree on killing Jesus. Verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. So he was wanting to see Jesus because he wanted to see a miracle. And what did Jesus say? It was a wicked and adulterous generation that required a sign to believe. But Herod wanted to see a sign. Show me some miracle. Do something astounding. Convince me. And he questioned Jesus at some length. But Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating Jesus with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Why? Because the Jews don't have any rule, any law, to allow them to just put somebody to death. They still need Pilate's buy-in to accomplish this. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had had enmity against each other. They didn't like each other at all, but that day they became buddies over the death of Jesus, and over the mockery of Jesus. He put a robe on Jesus like he was some kind of king and sent him back to Pilate. So Pilate, verse 13, summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast at least one prisoner. So Herod has decided the one prisoner he's going to release is Jesus. Because the insurrectionist Barabbas, that's a bad guy. That's a murderer. I'm not going to release him. I'm going to release Jesus because I don't have anything against him. 
But they, verse 18, but they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found no guilt in him demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were more insistent with loud voices, asking that Jesus be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. And he released the man that they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Now that's really interesting. It could have been any insurrectionist, any robber, any thief. It could have been anybody at that moment who was under Pilate's jurisdiction and in Pilate's prison. There was more than one person in there, and this particular murderer just happens to have this really, really interesting name. I mean, they didn't go find a guy in prison named Dave. They didn't go get Herman out of the prison. They took this guy, Barabbas. Okay, so that's a Hebrew name. What does Abba mean? Father. Okay, so with the name Simon Barjona, what's the bar part mean? Son of. Son of. What's his name mean then? Son of the fathers. So because Jesus ended up being crucified in his place, the son of the fathers goes free. That's interesting. It could have been anybody named anything. But because Jesus is in absolute control, because he was demonstrating who he is and teaching his own lesson of substitutionary atonement all the way through this, he made sure that the guy he stood in place of even represented the people he was dying for. He was the substitute for the guilty one who is the son of the fathers. And the son of God took his place. That's not an accident. That happened on purpose. Luke goes on to say in verse 26, And when they led him away, they laid hold of Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and they placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Jesus originally started carrying his own cross, and he had been so beaten and so emaciated by that point that that beam of wood was too much for him to carry and so this Simon of Serene is coming in from the country. He just comes into Jerusalem and the Roman guards descend on him and say, here, you carry this. He's got no choice but to do it. Turn back to the book of Mark. Mark says the same thing. We left off at chapter 15 Verse, well, let's start reading at verse 9. And Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up because of their envy of him. 
He was popular. He was gathering a crowd. And they knew that the more popular he became, the less power and authority they had. So therefore, because of their envy, they delivered Jesus up to Pilate. And Pilate knew it. He was hip to their tricks. He knew what they were up to. So he says to the people, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas to them instead. And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate was saying to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Okay, here's another element that's easy to kind of read past. This mob, this crowd, is the same group that just a couple days before had been throwing palm branches in the streets and crying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were so excited that the king of Israel was among them. They recognized him as the descendant of David, as their Messiah, and they were singing praises to him and throwing their own cloaks in the street along with the palm branches as he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey triumphantly. Couple days later, they're crying, crucify him. Why? What happened to them? Why the change of mind? Well, I happen to think that it was not left to chance. I don't think that they were just looking at him thinking, he's our political king, but now he's in the hands of Rome, therefore we don't trust him anymore, crucify him. I don't think that was the thinking going on. Paul says that when the Antichrist actually appears on the planet, he writes to the Thessalonians, he says that God is going to give them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie and be condemned. I think a very similar thing is happening in Jerusalem here. Not only is Satan inspiring the uh, betrayal of Jesus, not only is Satan very active in Jerusalem at this moment, bringing about even the denial of Peter because he desires to have Peter and sift him like wheat. But there's all this very dark demonic stuff going on in Jerusalem at this moment that is all leading to the crucifixion of Christ that has to happen that afternoon. And these people who were crying out about how much they love Jesus are now crying, crucify him. And I think that was a truly, genuinely spiritual battle happening at that moment. I don't think it was just the random choice of human beings. Because even in their hatred, even in their demonic disbelief of Jesus, even in their doing what they were doing, they were perfectly fulfilling scripture. Luke writes about it in the book of Acts and says, Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles were all gathered in Jerusalem to do whatever God's hand had foreordained to be done. So that means even this that they're doing at this moment and yelling crucify him is still in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God. And God is making sure that their minds were turned so that they would go from loving him to denying him. 
What's the important part there? Who's in control? Who's in charge here? Jesus is not the poor, innocent victim here. He made himself the victim. He makes himself the sacrificial lamb. He accomplishes his own death. But he and God in their sovereignty are still in absolute control of everything that's happening here. Because it's got to happen. It has to happen that day. And it has to happen quickly. Verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace that's called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole Roman cohort. And they dressed him up in purple. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They're mocking him. And they kept beating his head with a reed. Anybody here ever been caned? Okay, probably nobody here been caned. Okay. Uh, anybody ever been hit with a ruler? Oh, yeah. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Those of you that were ever hit with a ruler, how bad it hurt? It stings, doesn't it? Okay, that's the same thing. They're hitting him with, with reeds, pieces of bamboo. They're snapping it like a whip. And they're scourging his skin. And he's letting them. And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting at him and kneeling and bowing down in front of him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and they put his garments back on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming in from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now we know which guy that is. He was pressed into service to carry the cross because Jesus was beaten so badly at that point that he could no longer do it. Next week, we'll get to the crucifixion. Today was about the trial. And I hope you see how unjust the trial was. And I hope you see that the Jews were just trying to get him out of the way. But I hope you really see God's absolute authority and sovereignty through every single bit of this. Down to the details. Down to who talked and what they said. Down to Jesus being quiet outside of confirming that he was who he said he was. All of this is under the absolute control of God because he had to die on Passover. He had to be the Passover lamb or you have no hope. Questions. I've really got you very sullen at this moment, haven't I? Everybody's kind of in a wow moment now. I don't think it's sullen. I think it's just awe. I hope it's awe. I hope if you leave here today with nothing else, that you leave here with awe for the Savior that saved you and what he went through to do it. I'll put it this way. We like to talk doctrinally, we like to talk theologically about the sovereignty of God, as I've done this morning. But I don't want you to miss the humanity of what Jesus really went through. Because the humanity at this moment is why he took on flesh and blood. So that he could suffer and die. So that you wouldn't have to. Yes, sir? After hearing your explanation, I've decided I don't think this is all that important. But I think I'm right about this. Historically there have been people who have tried to push the narrative in favor of guilt on the Roman soldiers mm-hmm. and others who have you know, pushed, tried to push the guilt on, 
onto the Jews. And sometimes, sometimes they've done that to justify anti-Semitism. Uh, I quoted a few minutes ago from Acts. Luke, writing to a Gentile, doesn't leave the Jews with all the guilt. He says, Pilate and Herod, those are the two, the political leader and the religious leader, and the Jews and the Gentiles gathered together at Jerusalem to do whatever your hand foreordained to be done. So Luke put the guilt on everybody across the board. And I like the theological concept that we're all guilty of the death of Christ. If we were capable of being good and righteous and holy and not sinning, he wouldn't have had to die. But his death was because of every one of us, especially Tom, but every one of us. Yeah. So, <laughs> much. so uh, when you talk about responsibility and guilt, I think we all have to own that one. Yeah. Make sense? Sure. Yeah. Good question, though. Anything else? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, Brent, say goodbye to your daughter. Goodbye. Ah, there we go. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.